on unintended consequences, thinking that you know what's going on. I just had surgery. I thought it was one thing, and the doctor was like, nope, it actually was you had a fracture. I'm treating it for another thing, and that's what's going on. So online, this happens because people of all ages, they feel like they're talking to their friends. Some of these are friends you know and know offline, and some are friends you've only met online. And some are friends you don't know offline at all or online who are just passing through on your wall on Facebook. And you go and say a comment about your boss because you think that your friend group is closed, like you chose that privacy setting. What happens is, so you post that, one of your friends likes it, and then when they like it, you expose the post to all of their friends. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, results, and satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. Dr. Kira Gaunt conducts research on the unintended consequences of social media often offering expert testimony on the subject and helping protect our future employability and reputation online and off. With a focus on marginalized groups, she's a professor of ethnomusicology and digital media studies at the University of Albany in New York and one of the 40 inaugural TED Fellows. She has much to say about the aimless consequence of our own naivete. Having studied with Influence Ecology for four years, she shares about her own wide-eyed journey through the radical transparency movement to now offer important advice. Not everything should be said, spoken, liked, or shared. In our Guru Talk, we'll hear a small portion of a webinar classroom where we address our mantra, you're always transacting. And in this case, we address the identity we produce in every action we take. Here's the interview. Dr. Gott, welcome to the Influence Ecology Podcast. If you would, could you take a second and just introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Dr. Kira Gaunt. I am a professor, a published author, an award-winning author of a book called The Games Black Girls Play, Learning the Ropes from Double Dutch to Hip Hop. And I'm a social media researcher I study race, gender, and technology, and the effects or the unintended consequences on marginalized groups. One of the things that I would love to speak to you about is one of your very first notes on radical transparency. And I think it's a beautiful thing because I'm right at the end of the boomer generation. In our work here at Influence College, I've studied some of the other generations, and I know that for a while the radical transparency was quite common or popular, I'll say that. And it probably is still popular with certain groups. And we could talk about 
radical transparency and people would say, that's a great thing or that's a terrible thing. So I think we should talk about it here in terms of transactional competence because I can tell from your journey when you wrote this and then in our private conversations we've had over the years that this particular notion has changed for you. As I was thinking about asking you about radical transparency, nothing would make a better podcast than a kind of transparency that lets people into your life. But at the same time, I certainly want to be responsible about the kind of identity you seek to produce in the future. So all that being said, tell us a little bit about your early belief in radical transparency and how that shifted for you when you began to study here. I want to start with like, I don't want to grow up, I'm a Toys R Us kid. <laughs> Some of the research I do says that there's a kidultization, like a way that adults are being kids. Yeah. And this radical transparency thing, I think I adopted because I wanted to be a part of that social innovation community. And that social mm. innovation community is mostly driven by a lot of very elite innovators from the tech world who are catering, of course, to the millennials. Mm-hmm. And radical transparency is I can do what I want, say what I want, and there's a big naivete with it, and I was totally lock, stock, and barrel hooked on it. I wanted to be a part of that movement, and it was the theme of one of the TED conferences. I'm, I'm a part of the TED community. I'm one of the inaugural TED fellows. The theme for, I think, the 2011 conference was radical transparency. And that's very different than what I've learned to do, which is not everything should be said in all companies. Not mixed companies, certain things shouldn't be said, and not in front of my students, I shouldn't say things. In the past, I used to tell my students everything. If I may, just to go back, what guided your want to emulate this radical transparency you saw with these tech gurus and at the TED conference? What was the win of being transparent that way? At the time, it was that this was going to solve the problem of the corporatization of things. The corporate responsibility movement, I think, arose about the same time, which was this idea that ethics needs to be uncovered. And so we need to share things about our books and have people understand how things work under the hood, open the black box so that you can see what's going on and have a better handle on things. But I think people actually, even me, someone with a PhD who's supposed to think <laughs> critically about things, but I actually didn't know how to do that then, to be honest. I think people collapse that with the idea that I see my students do again and again, that somehow that's about free speech. I can say or do whatever I want, which isn't even the definition of free speech. <laughs> if I say something to you, you can say something back to me. <laughs> that's free speech. You don't get to just have your say. That's it. It was very much this idea that somehow the objective transparency got collapsed with the subjective notion of transparency. Gotcha. I was just on an advanced program call with some of our most advanced students. We were talking about tactics. It's often the case that people will see tactics that one company will do and then they'll imitate them. For example, we all have heroes. We have our heroes in movies, but we also have our business heroes and our tech heroes and our political heroes. And we see them do a thing or say a thing or act a way. And then 
we say, oh, well, Steve Jobs was kind of a jerk. I'll be a jerk. And then we copy the tactic. Kirkland was just speaking about a television show where they were talking about, oh, he's being a jerk. Oh, he must be reading the Steve Jobs book at this moment or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. So is it your experience that people have these transparent heroes and they go about emulating that and that's that particular view of how to save the world? I think the save the world approach comes when you're not really taking care of yourself. So if you're not getting enough sleep and you're not getting enough rest, I'm single, so there's nobody saying, listen, Kira, you haven't gotten a lot of rest today, so what you're thinking about isn't really good sense. I didn't have a good work ethic. I didn't know exactly what to define that I should be doing. It was just I had this position. I was an authority. And so I was one of those people that looked for the kind of catchphrase mentality. Yeah. And I was totally wrapped up in the little pieces of what I heard about Jobs, that he went from place to place and did things and he did whatever he wanted and that that somehow created his genius. And I was all over the place. So I could identify with that. This way in which people wanted to be like Mike, be like Michael Jordan. Ah. And everybody talked about it, but nobody realized that Michael Jordan failed a lot. Right. People want to look at his journey at the end and say, oh, I can be like that. Or look at Britney Spears and go, I can sing like that. And they don't acknowledge the work and the time and the discipline and the focus. I've really had to step back. I mean, really step back. In the beginning, I really felt a little demoralized by it. But Inside Influence Ecology, at every moment I felt like, God, I feel like I've lost everything. There would be these little moments of insight that would carry me through on our calls. And you know, I would just be totally agitated, totally taken out of my comfort zone of what I had been faking, to be honest, going through every day. And finding a way to be with that while I was retraining myself, retooling myself. Just in your journey, say now exactly what you do for people on social media or how you're helping people address their use of it. Just say that briefly. Surely. So I am a social media researcher who studies the unintended consequences of the things people do on Facebook, Twitter, mostly Facebook. I've been in help to people attorneys, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, defending their clients who get in trouble on Facebook. So I would imagine that you see an enormous amount of radical transparency, naivete, mistakes, really bad behavior. I could go on with that list. But it also sounds like that particular mission is something that's maybe in response to some of the lessons that you learned, some of your earlier lessons, and what happened there. And since this is what you do now, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this and some of your early lessons and where you discovered you were perhaps naive about your own, your own identity out there on social media? Two quick stories. This memory has emerged the last couple of weeks that made me realize that this probably was a part of the path that led me astray. I'll start backwards. The more recent event was six years ago. 
in that moment while I was embracing this radical transparency, I decided I would leave my job. This was just a few years after the crash. Mm. <laughs> I thought that I could just leave my job and invent myself into something else. And I've only been an academic. I've not worked in any other capacity. Every penny I've ever earned has been as a graduate student or a professor. I resigned partly because I was stuck and I didn't know how to ask for the help. And I was deep in just confusion, despair, loss. But I have a persona, and I've had this since I was very young, that people think I know what I'm doing. That mm-hmm. They just assume. One of my department chairs, I actually didn't get tenure at a university earlier in my career, and one of my department chairs afterwards said, I just thought you were okay. You seemed like you were okay. And so I left. Then I decided to marry somebody that I met online, and I didn't really have any investment in that, and it was a disaster. And that is about the time that I met somebody in influence ecology who invited me to come participate as a member. Did you do these things sort of out of a whim? Was there some belief system guiding you? It was the radical transparency. It was, these people don't understand what students really need. I'm the only one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm trying to understand your mindset at the time. I get the radical transparency. When you say that, what that means to me is revealing your most internal thoughts out loud or saying whatever you want to say, whenever you want to say it, acting however you want to act and so forth. Were you also of the belief that if you were aggressive in your action and you sort of moved boldly and decisively through life, that the universe was going to catch you? No. <laughs> Let me put it flat out. I was being an asshole, high cost, uh-huh. offering help when it wasn't asked for, In reality, at its core, I wasn't doing my work. I see. All right. Professors have a publish and perish ethic. I get it. And I was focusing on students, helping students, but not doing my scholarship. And now that you've participated here at Influence Ecology, would you say that your quote unquote being an asshole was the attributes of being a judge, and you just didn't know that at the time? You didn't know how to use that as an asset? Or were you just simply irresponsible for the role you had? A little of both. When I was feeling arrogant, it was that, the judge making their assessments made without contextualizing them, without thinking about it as an offer of help. And it was that I was simply naive about asking for help. I'm kind of wondering if also in the mix of things was finding your voice, speaking your voice, having a say, any of that kind of thing, you're a product of the boomers. And the marginalized group boomers, the black power baby boomers. And the, the year I was born, it was like Agent Orange and you know, like there's just a lot of stuff going on. So you're a marginalized boomer, and you're going to have your say by God, and people can just tough it. (laughs) So so here's the thing, John. This is the the other story. When I was in seventh grade, it's totally relevant to this moment and to that moment back then. I grew up in a a 100-year-old black community in, in Rockville, Maryland, and we were bused into a predominantly white school. And this particular year, 
was different. I thought that we were all, each of us black students were in a separate class with a bunch of white people because we were the marginalized group, that they were like spreading us out. But this year they put me in a class with all the black students. All of a sudden I was like, there's something wrong here. There was a word miswritten on the board and I tried to meekly, I was very, very shy. I mean, painfully shy. Raise my hand and say, excuse me, the that word is, I think it's I before E, right? That's E before I. No, the word is correct. I ended up at the principal's office. My single mom had to leave her job, come to school. Long story short, they put me in a room and said, you got to take this quiz, this little one-page quiz, and you can't get any help. You just got to fill it out. And the first question, I swear to you, was, what is the War of 1812? And I sat there for like 20 minutes, like this is, something's wrong. But they ended up putting me back in the class with the predominantly white students. When you're young, you blur memories. But what I do know is that I started to distrust myself. I really started to then question race and question gender, but inside, not out. I didn't talk about it a lot until much, much later in life. So now I'm a professor and I have this power I can for this agenda and try to shift that agenda. And it's not, it has not been beneficial to me. Now that I'm doing the right work, I don't have to fight those kitty battles. Very good. All right. So you made these choices, what you're calling poor choices, without consulting other people. And you end up in some trouble financially, and you come across Influence Ecology. And what attracted you to this in the beginning? Well, one, I was just at my bottom. I was at the pit. I was at the bottom of the well. I had a PhD, but I couldn't get myself out of this financial home. I literally was rock bottom. When someone who was in influence ecology said, listen, they had been trying to invite me before things hit rock bottom. And I did something that I would never do today, but I'm so glad that I did then because I know more about money than I knew then. But I dipped into my retirement to pay to be a part of the ecology. And the thing that made a difference right away was that, well, I'm a judge and I like reading. But back then I couldn't even read. I was so distracted. But when we started studying and the things that are in these study papers, they made common sense. They made me see like, we talk about this a lot, a mirror being put up to you. They made me see the mistakes that I had been thinking were good choices. Mm. And I was, I was ready to listen in. I was ready to buckle down and study. And I would, I would study for two to three hours um, every Saturday morning, no matter who was in, wherever I lived, read out loud and just do that deliberately. I remember for the first six months, I was just like, I, I just need to do this. It wasn't even a thought. It was producing a result for me palpably that I just was like, just keep doing this. So I started to clear out the cobwebs and provide some certainty and some clarity and started to illuminate the mistakes and the like. So now you've been around for a while and some of those early naivetes are moving to the side and, and so forth. So I want to move to where we are now in your journey because you in my experience, have a pretty deep and profound understanding of something that I think is worth talking about, which is your 
experience of what we might refer to as the transactional whole, where in the past you didn't relate to yourself, we often say like an organism in an environment, you might have related to yourself sort of as above all that. But that's a really simple way of getting at other ways we might not consider ourselves part of a whole. And I've seen you have some big things happen because you have no longer considered yourself a person of your own mind, that it's just you over there in your own head, or that it's you over there in your own world. And in fact, you and I just spoke a day or two ago, and you talked a little bit about falling in love with the game you've always hated, and you now are part of that game rather throwing rocks at it. And so you could say I've watched you embrace the marketplace in the way that you've come to embrace gravity. And I just wanted you to say something about that. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. I had a very weak relationship to money. It in part comes from not only naivete, but being a musician or being trained in the ecology of musicians who think your talent is important, but not your competence with money. And so the game was always about that I'm an artist whatever I think is more important, and that the people who have money, they're crass or something. And so we play these games at conferences, and right off the bat, you get thrown into a situation where you got to produce results that have consequences. And that's the game. The game has, it's a consequential environment that feels exactly like what you might see out in the so-called big bad world that a lot of people poo-poo. It's crass or that it's, it's not fair. But favor isn't fair. And so playing games that are consequential, that we allow the same kinds of norms and values that happen out there in the real world, in an environment where it's really ambitious. I mean, we play hard. We play with very strict rules, and it's playful sometimes. (laughs) Uh But it's very serious. I mean, like, we put our money where our mouth is in so many different contexts. In those games, I learned about my personality. So the first game, I remember my first time at the first mid-year conference, I would get up to the mic, and they were like, you guys would just say things to me about, do you understand? You could just complicate everything. I like go sit down in my seat and want to cry. (laughs) But 
I would hold myself like, remember, we're, we're, we're practicing here. Watch your mood. Don't go crazy. Just like you would say, you guys say this in all the papers. Don't get frustrated. Just do your best. Bring a sense of wonder to learning. And I tell my students this all the time so that it feels more like a game in the truest sense of play, which, you know, if you played basketball or you played in the sandbox, there are times when you throw sand in other people's eyes because something didn't go well. That's a part of the game. But adults, it seemed, or at least this adult, I'll speak for myself, I stopped playing. It was all serious. And it was not objective. And it was all subjective. Like I always was worried about what people think about me instead of focusing on my work. And so the game is to focus on my work now and to measure those results now and to have my students have a consequence around things. Like I've just been teaching for two classes and they're already like, what's the game? The game like, how do I get on the leaderboard? How do I get on the leaderboard? (laughs) And I won't tell them. (laughs) They should be able to figure that out because that's the way the game is played in the real world. Nobody tells you how it works. You figure it out by playing the game. That's very, very good. So it sounds like you've brought a consequential environment to the classroom. How are people responding to that compared to what you may have seen in classrooms where there's little to no consequence? What I see is like a thronging to my classroom space. I just taught a month-long course in January with about 13 students. And each one of them, even the one that got a C plus and couldn't hang through the whole 24 days, said, I learned so much in your class. And she was a returning student. She was like, I just have this job going on. And other students are like, nobody's ever taught me about deliberate practice. Or nobody's ever taught me. I give them the research and videos, which they need. (laughs) And millennials need videos on the data on multitasking. And every single one of them was like, I'm not going to do that ever again. I see you can't do that. You can't do two things at one time in the brain. And so I'm arming them with the tools so that they can deliberately practice long-term developing their mind, not anthropology or sociology, what I teach, which is a function of what we do. They do learn those, those disciplines. But they can take the tools of work, the work ethic of, oh, I actually need to get sleep. My brain won't learn. I can't cram stuff overnight my whole life. That was high school. This is college. And so I see them acting like adults, not waiting for me to tell them what to do, offering to help me with things. And even students who fail some of my classes will come to me later and say, oh my God, Professor G, I learned so much in your class. I teach in New York. (laughs) People tell me, how do I know so much? I learned it in Professor G's class. Uh, I like Professor G. That might be your nickname from now on. I should tell you, in the early days, I called myself Professor G because I'm also a hip-hop specialist. But what I saw was I was avoiding owning my full identity. I hadn't even framed my PhD till about seven years ago. And I've had a PhD since 96. I use Dr. Gaunt because I'm using it to remind myself who I am for others, not to me, but who I am 
for others is someone who has a PhD, who is looked to as an authority, and that I offer that help. And that means that there's a certain level of work and discipline that I have to do to produce that ongoingly, which I didn't get before. I can't just hold a PhD. That's not enough. If you would talk a little bit about the work that you do. And in particular, I think it'd be really good since we we started with radical transparency. And in this journey, we've talked about the naivetes of how you might present yourself online, or the dangers of how you might present yourself online. I think it'd be useful for us to talk a little bit about career. And as you know, we talk about career as the identity that you produce in the mind of others, whatever that may be. So do you have any general advice to our audience about cautions, cautions about the things they might present online and some of the things they simply just may be naive to? Yes, I've been constructing a little narrative around this since conference, actually. It started with just looking up the word unintended consequences, which is a term that was started by a sociologist named Robert Merton back in the 1950s. There are five principles. Errors in thinking, actually thinking that you know what you're doing when you don't, right? So what we call accurate thinking. An unintended consequence is thinking that you know what's going on. I just had surgery. I thought it was one thing and the doctor was like, nope, it actually was you had a fracture. (laughs) So I'm treating it for another thing and that's what's going on. So online, this happens because people of all ages... They feel like they're talking to their friends. Some of these are friends you know and know offline, and some are friends you've only met online, and some are friends you don't know offline at all or online who are just passing through on your wall on Facebook. And you go and say that something flippant like a comment about your boss. You could say something because you think that your friend group is closed. You chose that privacy setting. What happens is, so you post that. One of your friends likes it. And then when they like it, you expose the post to all of their friends. So if they have 2,000 friends and you had 200, you now have 220 people who have access to that post. And in in a court in these days, if you do something illegal from libel or beyond, defamation, anything. You have no Fourth Amendment rights to things that you say when that third party clicks that that content. They can come search and seizure you without a warrant. Mm. So it's really dangerous. That's an unintended consequence. You think you're just talking to your friends and the er- friends and your the error in thinking. So you don't understand how Facebook works at all. You just go there every day for a lot of time. And they're taking data off of the back of everything you do. But they're also tracking everything you say, everything you click, everywhere you go with your phone. All of those things, when you think about it, there's no one who's immune to that. So as we say, you're always transacting. But the problem is that I study is that people who are most vulnerable suffer the most. People who don't have enough money to defend themselves in court people who are marginalized groups, people who have disabilities. Those are the people who suffer the most from the consequences. All of us, no one is immune, not presidents. (laughs) No one is immune. In your own journey, 
grown up a bit and you're now much more responsible for your own activity online. I was just typing yesterday and I said, oh, no, we're not going to publish that. <laughs> to any group of uh, any person, w w whatever group they may be in, what's your recommendation about their activity on social media or online? Is it just to be cautious? I watch people post things all the time when they're sad and annoyed and frustrated or angry and they say things that they probably ought not. Any, anything you want to say about all that to wrap it up? I've been blogging about this on my blog, curiosity.wordpress.com. It's Kira, letter O, city.wordpress.com, about these unintended consequences for all people, even though I target particular groups. But there's some simple principles, very simple. Don't say anything you wouldn't want your grandmother or your lover to find out online or your, or your boss. Just don't say it. Don't say anything unkind or untoward online. Nothing. Just don't. Keep it to yourself and only share it away from your cell phone because it's also recording you. Just don't say those things. Just have a practice to learn to be kind. Understand that people are all making mistakes and saying things out of turn. And allow them the privacy and keep your own privacy by not saying everything online. I'm going to speak to the squirming teenager in me that wants to say, yeah, but can't I say what I want? And can I say it when I want and how I want? Isn't there freedom of speech? And But what about all that? Yes. So my first court case was with a 21-year-old who posted online. This case is now settled, so I can talk about it. He posted in a Facebook long, we call it TLDR, too long, didn't read. It was like three pages on an iPhone. He said, I bombed the courthouse. I was behind the killing of those cops. And he was joking. And at the end of the post, he said, just kidding, essentially. Most people didn't read that far. And he went to court and he lost, even though my testimony was very beneficial to his case. The thing that he was being charged with that I was talking about, he got off on. But the other thing, he did not. And so I would say, go Google, G-O-O, use your Google machine to go look up how many cases there are around the country. From people who write rap lyrics and post them to this woman named Justine Sacco who tweeted, I'm going to Africa and I might get AIDS, just kidding. She lost her job, lost everything. Everything changed. It's fine if you're not harmed by it. You might think, oh, I don't, I'm not doing anything wrong. No, everybody has something to hide. Everything, everybody has something to protect. Your reputation in the future, at the very least, you must protect. And it's more and more surveillance and more and more transparency of things that you put online that you must protect by not sharing them online. So that's how you stay out of trouble. <laughs> It's all good. I just had the image in my mind of the relationship between a tattoo and a tweet. It used to be that if I wrote something on a piece of paper, it would, you know, I could burn it, it would go away. I get a tattoo and a tattoo's forever. I could get it removed, but, you know, generally. But everything online, there are things that I watch people say when they're teenagers that they're going to have to live with when they're 30 or 40 or 50. I, I personally, as a boomer, don't have that consequence to deal with. I don't have the consequence to my identity and my career and my future job and my future earnings and my future political 
office that I may decide to run for. I don't have the permanency of anything I've said when I was 20. I beg to differ. I have one case that I use in my research. Oh, come on. Back me up here. I'm making an argument. (laughs) (laughs) There's a 50-year-old woman in Canada, a boomer, who lost her job at a high school drama. She was a high school drama teacher. When she was starting her career at 24 in Paris, she did an art nude film. Ah. And someone found it and posted it online just about three years ago. The high school was like, see you, wouldn't want to be you. Yeah. In Canada and the United States, there's not a right to be forgotten, which means something you did long ago can't be used against you. All right. Well, this has been fun, and I appreciate your expertise. I appreciate your journey. I appreciate your being a customer of Influence Ecology and our friendship. And Dr. Kiragant, Dr. G, I thank you so much for being a guest on the Influence Ecology podcast. And without anything else you'd like to say, The founders of this company are offering something that is just unique and remarkable. Transactionalism is something that John Dewey began working on long ago, and other people, even Galileo, began speculating about these principles and this kind of transactional whole. And the ecology of people that you have brought together in this really select ecology, it's extremely diverse. It's extremely knowledgeable. I mean, I just, anything that I need, I can find in our ecology. And I love how much I've grown and I continue to grow by leaps and bounds. I always say to you guys, this has been a better training than my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I do not mean, I would never say that lightly because that's a terminal degree and it's not easy to get. It's wonderful. So thank you. Thank Thank you. you. In our Guru Talk, we listen in on a small portion of a Fundamentals of Transaction webinar classroom where we address our mantra. The mantra is, you're always transacting. This portion of the lesson is designed to address the identity we produce in every action we take. Vice President Drew Knowles and I give a talk about the blindness we have to our own transactional behavior and again, how the actions we take or don't take influence the identity we produce with others. Here's the talk. Our mantra, and the mantra for you throughout this program, is that you are always transacting to satisfy your conditions of life, so is everyone else. What does that mean? You, there in your chair, or if you're walking around the house or office, wherever you are, you are always constantly in a dance, in an exchange with the environment and all of the people around you in your environment, all the objects in your environment, there are always reciprocal exchanges going on. And you are part of those, you're an element of those, an aspect of those. There is this transactional whole going on at all times. And as human beings, through evolution, what we learn to do to coexist in social environments is transact, participate in reciprocal exchange. Why? Well, we have these things we call conditions of life. And that's what we're all up to. That's what you are doing here is to learn how to transact even better to satisfy your conditions of life. And that's what everyone else out there in the marketplace is doing. How you transact here is how you transact. Period. That's it. But when XYZ 
No, how you transact here is how you transact. Occasionally, doesn't happen that much these days, John, but occasionally we have people say, oh, no, 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 I'm not normally like that. And from time to time, breakdowns happen that are unforeseen. But pretty much from about now, John, or even especially around session three, we're observing and beginning to predict how you're going to go throughout this Fundamentals of Transaction program. And for some of you, it's really obvious with some of the ways that you're already transacting. We want you to begin to pay close attention to how you transact here and out there in the marketplace because that's how you transact. Some of you are on time or you're not. Some of you complete your study papers in advance or you're rushing to the very last minute to get them in at Sunday you know, midday. You come to the call prepared to ask questions or you don't. You might be waiting to see what other people ask or just waiting for us to kind of do it to you. You participate with the appropriate respect or you might participate with a little conceit. You know, you're above a bit of this, you've heard a bit of this before, doesn't really apply to you, we're not talking to you, or you participate with a kind of naivety or entitlement. You work alone or you work with others. We've already said study groups are a thing we highly recommend. Get yourself in a study group. I believe a lot of you are doing that, getting into that from speaking to some of you. And there will be some of you who absolutely just ignore that and work alone. We want you to examine and pay attention to those kinds of behaviors that may give you some clues as to a lack of satisfaction in certain conditions of life or aims that you have. You act or speak with or without concern for the transactional whole that I mentioned earlier. You're self-actional, interactional, or transactional. Before we go into those three, because I think we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time there, I'm reminded, Drew, you know this story. I won't say who these people are. So there's somebody then that lives in my town. And for years, she's a restaurant owner. Her restaurant just closed. And for years, she's been wondering and talking about why her business isn't doing well. And she's on a street where there are several similar businesses are doing really well. So... I want you to consider this. She's got a great location. She's got a very clear business. It's clear that she owns a restaurant. The kind of food that she sells is quite clear. In fact, the food has been highly recommended. People love the food. It's delicious. It's a great little place. It's a great, cute restaurant. It's in the center of a small tourist town. There are all kinds of people in and out of this town all the time. And she's wondered for years why no one comes to her business. She asked me one time, and I almost had the opportunity to tell her, but it was at a party. She hadn't paid me yet. I was about to launch into a thing to say, look, I, I'll tell you, but you know, you haven't paid me. The reason that people don't go to this person's store is her transactional behavior. In other words, she has a great little business. Very clear. Everything I already said, but she's a pain in the ass. She's kind of prickly in her mood. She isn't respectful of you when you come into the restaurant. She's just not great to transact with. So she is expecting that people love her, appreciate her, respect her, 
she expects that people would come to her town and honor her restaurant, but nobody likes to do business with her. I'm saying this because many of you have all kinds of situations that you're involved in where what you do is clear, your business is clear, your business model is functional, you're in a great situation or environment or circumstance, but the missing piece, a missing piece, has simply been that you are not fun to transact with. You're high cost. It takes an enormous amount of effort to work with you. There's a cost people have to incur to work with you and meet with you and speak with you. And it just may be a complete and utter blind spot. And one aspect, it's only one aspect of what we're going to teach here. One aspect of what we're going to deal with is we're going to deal with what it's like to transact with you. And we'll hold up that mirror in every possible way and in every circumstance we can to say, look, this is what it's like to transact with you. I want you to have an ambitious and satisfying life and every condition of life satisfied. You are satisfied, objectively, clearly satisfied. And in order for that to happen, not only is your transaction have to be powerfully built, not, not only are you going to have to think accurately about so many things, but you're also going to have to move in transactions with other people in ways that are highly valued and low cost. In our next episode, we interview Joe McNerney, an extremely knowledgeable attorney with outstanding trial skills and unquestionable professionalism, as we talk about the need for having lots of great help. I'm arrogant enough at least some time ago, to think that I don't need anybody else. I can do everything on my own. If I want it done right, do it myself. And boy, have I got a rude awakening when it comes to the importance of having enormous support and a great staff and an amazingly supportive family and relationships. I represent people that tell me from time to time that are in a jam with the criminal law that they don't have anybody, that they don't have any family, they don't have any money, they don't have any way to borrow money, they don't have any way to, to hire a lawyer like me. And of course, they're in desperate, desperate straits. And it's always breathtaking to me to have people say that to me because they don't have a chance. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to share it with others, you can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe. We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Episode producer, editor, and music supervisor Jason Kelly. Podcast copy and show notes, editing, and links by Carol Gregory.